We are indeed thankful, God, for the opportunity to give these tithes and offerings as spiritual sacrifices of praise to you on high, Lord. Accept them, we pray, through the blood of Christ Jesus. Amen. First Peter 2, 9 and 10, this well-known passage of the Word of God. I will have another sermon on it. I do that sometimes for the passages that seem to have a lot or certainly get our attention. I'll go over the exegetical and then dig down in another sermon through parts of it for more detailed application. First Peter 2. 9 through 10, let us listen attentively to the word of God. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let us pray. With these amazing words, Lord, with these amazing metaphors and pictures and word images, God, may we again stand in awe of how you have transformed, Lord, your church from the Old Testament Jewish state to the New Testament era where Gentiles are now included, but using all the Old Testament language and theology, frankly, God, because there's only one people of God has always ever, only ever been one people of God. We praise the Lord for setting us apart by your Spirit to be a special people, that we are your people, Lord, and we are called forth to show praises of you who have called us out of darkness. In your name alone we pray. Amen. This classic verse, or these verses, remind us of our high and holy calling in Jesus Christ. It reminds us that although we live in a world, are citizens of this nation, we have neighbors and our neighbors of our communities that we are members of our family, that we are a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, an uncle, an aunt, even so, we are still called the people of God. We have another allegiance, a higher allegiance and calling. We are a special people. I know in America we like to think we're special. In some senses we are, depending on the question at hand, historically, and how odd we are as the, as the American experiment, for example. But we're not really special the way the Bible is talking about here, where you are a chosen generation, a special people, God's own special people, and no one else's special people. A people drawn from every nation of the world, from every background and social strata, from every ethnic group. That is what God has called us unto. We have many hats, as they say, right? A son, a daughter, a father, a mother, a citizen, a worker. We have another hat that's always with those other hats, and that is a child of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So let us see what this is all about as we unpack here this idea, this language of the Old Testament yet again. The first point, a chosen generation of holiness. He doesn't say holiness here, but we know it's here. The idea of holiness is to be separate or set apart. The word holy is here, a holy nation. Chosen is similar to that idea. Special is yet again similar to that idea. And so I want to talk about a generation of holiness It is unto this goal or end, and he will unpack that in verse 11 and following, where he reminds them, he begs them, because they had some problems apparently, as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts. That's what it means to be holy and separate, to be a chosen generation, not just to be odd for oddness sake, but unto holiness. And again, it's the Old Testament and the language therein where he unpacks and applies it to the New Testament Church. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, we read, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. Does that sound familiar? That's what he's talking about here. For all the earth is mine, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter didn't just make this stuff up. 
Like a good New Testament Christian, he took the Old Testament seriously and applied it to the New Testament church because it's one body of Christ. This people I have formed for my, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm in Isaiah, I'm ahead of myself. I'm so excited, right? Isaiah 43.20. Isaiah 43.20. The beasts of the field will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. To give drink to my people, my chosen, this people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Right? So we have a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Exodus 19, his own special people, same verse, and then this one, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. And so he combines Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43.20, as it's common practice in the New Testament. And he's telling his audience, this is you. As someone said elsewhere in a commentary, Peter sees the church as now fulfilling Israel's destiny. A reminder, again, the Old Testament people of God are the same as the New Testament people of God in substance. That is, those who are God's people. Those who are God's people both had to confess God and believe in Christ, although one was Christ to come, ours is Christ who has already come. Both, of course, had to live a life of repentance. John the baptizer came to preach repentance to make straight the way of the Lord. So we read in Malachi 4. And both had to follow God's law. Same gospel, same law and principle that is the moral law of God. It's the same church, same called out ones. In the Old Testament, it is those who are called out, kahal. The chosen generation, I'll go through the words here. This is interesting, going through, at least for me, and I'm the weird pastor, right? I know some of the Greek here in Hebrew. I'm not as good as Dr. Kappas, to be sure, but I have my resources, uh, and they keep me in line. A chosen generation, this word is translated differently. It could be kindred or people. Has obvious Old Testament reference, right? In the Old Testament, that's clearly what they were. The Jews were the kindred. They are related to each other biologically in the people of God. This Greek word, interestingly enough, there's a couple different Greek words here, can be translated descendants or family, a common ethnic group, a race, a people, or a nation. We read that in Acts 7.19. Kindred and even extended family, Acts 7.13. And as I said before, descendants or family, and that's a Revelation 22.16. So the word is used in those different ways, but all a commonality there. We read in Isaiah 43.20 again, uh, to give drink to my people, my chosen, this people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. So he talks about a people or a kindred or a nation. Uh, the Old Testament word there, kindred, is the same as here, kindred or people, used for a collection larger than a clan, but smaller than a race or an ethnic group. It emphasizes the unity of that group. And in the Old Testament, it's often used for Israel, of course, as a distinct ethnic group, as over and against the goyim, the nations of the world. But it's used of them at times when it talks about them as a unit. And it's used of Abraham's offspring when God says, I'll make for you a people from this covenant, right? So the Old Testament idea then is of a chosen people or a chosen kindred or a chosen nation. So it overlaps with this other word we know here, the holy nation, next, next two words over. And we know, of course, it was never about birth as such, right? You circumcised those born into the covenant, did not negate the fact that others could join the covenant that weren't Jews. And that certainly happened in the Old Testament. Caleb is one of the star examples. I mean, it means dog because he was a Gentile. And other Gentiles had joined the church. The line of Christ, even. They knew that. And yet, by the time of Christ Jesus, all the traditions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had layered upon layer to make it look like it's always about being a Jew. It was never about being a Jew. They even paid attention to their own history. Where did Abraham come from? Non-Jewish roots, right? (laughs) God chose him and said, I'm making you the Jew. 
You're the father of a nation. So even the origin told you it was temporary. It was never to be lasting, everlasting. The, the, the godly understood something of the, along those lines in the Old Testament. I mean, we see that again with Christ. We, my wife likes to ask, what did they really know, you know in the Old Testament? What did they know at the time? How much theology did they understand? We get hints of it from like Christ. When Christ says to Nicodemus, you're a leader in Israel and you don't know about regeneration? Don't you know your own testament? And how many Christians? I was one of those. I grew up that way. And some of you did as well. What? Oh, you're right. There is a thing called regeneration in the Old Testament. You don't have to have the New Testament to know these things are real. This is real doctrine here. And same, I would argue with this, that the Jewishness as such was never Jewish absolutely, but relatively. The majority, of course, in God's providence that were called into salvation were ethnic Jews or biological Jews, but not exclusively. Other Jews could join the covenant. It was right there in the law in Exodus 20, 12, 48 of the Passover. They get circumcised and they can join in their families too. So that's the chosen generation. A royal priesthood. Uh, this is something to behold, I think. We're so used to this phrase that we forget how odd it sounds. In the Old Testament, kings could not offer up sacrifices and priests didn't sit on thrones. So how can you combine the two, this royal priesthood? What's going on here? Saul could not sacrifice without Samuel acting as the priest. Yet Peter is telling the Christian audience, you could do both. The royalty idea here, of course, is the kingship. The priesthood is not sacrificing animals. Obviously, Peter's not saying, as we know at this time in the New Testament, hey, you go back to the temple and sacrifice and have a bloody sacrifice and animals of the like. But rather, he's emphasizing uh, twofold, perhaps, entering God's holy presence by the blood of Christ Jesus. You do that in the imagery of the Old Testament, as a priest. You bring the blood, this is the atonement, and allows you access to the Holy God. So that, in that sense, you're acting as a priest. You're pleading the blood of Christ. But also, the priesthood as holiness. And that seems to be the emphasis here in this text, right? Chosen, separated, a holy nation, obviously there. A special people, again, special, unique, set apart, holy. They're uh, synonyms of each other. To, pro to proclaim the praises of God, and then he unpacks that in 11, 12, and 13, and they're on. So it's the emphasis there of priests being holy and set aside. That was the emphasis of the Old Testament. The priests were special, the holy of the holies, as it were, of the people of God. In the prior text here, as you recall, uh, in verse 7 and 8, the uh, awful, that is, the awesome, the terrifying doctrine of reprobation, uh, of those uh, who were disobedient, the stones which the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, the scandalon. They stumbled being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. And he's saying, that's not you. So you have a contrast here, and then he unpacks this contrast of you being a royal priesthood, of being holy unlike them who are disobedient and unholy, and then a holy nation. And there's the explicit word holiness, or sanctification, which is a related word, to be set aside, separation from the world, the flesh, and the devil, to follow God's law. No longer Israel as such, as we know, no longer Jewishness. Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I say to you, this is Jesus, the kingdom of God, will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. He calls it a nation. But we know Jesus isn't using the word nation in the strict sense of, yeah, well, now we have the United States of Christian America or something. But in the spiritual sense, fundamentally, of those who are conceived as one unit, the body of Christ, whatever they may be from the world, which is, of course, offensive to the Pharisees at the time. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Being of Abraham's seed is not biological anymore, and it wasn't ever before as such. It's just majority of it, right? It's the majority of it. 
Not all of it. It was never fundamentally that fact. Not all circumcised are the circumcision, but those who are circumcised of the heart, Paul says in Romans 2. And he's again arguing from the Old Testament, saying this is the way it was always. It's just that in God's providence, he had worked to such that many of them were Jews. Praise be. That's his prerogative. God decided to choose them. And unfortunately, by the time of Peter, of course, of the Pharisees and, back, and the background Peter has as a Jew and Paul and the like, many Jews did not bother believing in Jesus, but trusted in their heritage as Jews or trusted in their circumcision or something like that. But God had never planned to keep the church Jewish. It was a church and it was Jewish. If you wanted to join Christianity, if you wanted to be saved, you had to join the Jewish church and do Jewish things. That was a holy nation. Right, to be part of the nation as a political, geopolitical entity was also be part of the church. That's how God overlapped the two. But it was two institutions nevertheless, because as we know, the king had his own courts, the priests had their own courts, their duties were clearly separated and distinguished in the Old Testament. So although the memberships were the same, the duties and responsibilities were different. But that has changed today. We don't have to do it Jewishly anymore. We are a holy nation. That is the people of God. We are the fulfillment of Israel's future. The Jews today are no longer special. They want to be special again. They have to believe in Jesus Christ and be grafted into the church. For they've all been cut off of that institution that was always there, the church. To use the imagery of Romans 11. We are the nation of God. Even though we have our own government, as American citizens, we have yet another government. We have the church government. We have church officers. We have church membership. We have spe- specific church functions. The Lord's Supper and baptism are, dis- are unique and distinguishing aspects, public aspects of the church before the world to show that we are different than them. We are a special people, a holy nation, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. The church is not an extension of the state or family. That is not what he's saying here. It is not a business but it has its own officers and rules while still operating within a nation. And we are a special people of praise. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, is the second point, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. A special people, another Greek word, the word people here, that means same stock and same language. So the stock of Abraham, the language of the Bible. We are special because we are bought with the special blood of Christ Jesus. Now, as a reminder, in all this language of the uniqueness of the church and how chosen and special and unique that we are, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people, we we need to remember that this does not mean we give up being a family man or a mother or a citizen of this nation. I'm a Christian. I have nothing to do with this world. Sorry. What about your poor wife? I'm special. we're We're our own little nation. Some of the Anabaptists did that kind of confused way of thinking. And that comes into church once in a while in this form, even in conservative, even in reform circles, with kind of this rhetorical approach to things. Well, you know, we're better than the politics around us because we're a holy nation and we're separate from the world. That's not what somebody's saying here. He still reminds them in Peter, right? Do your duty. If you're a slave, be a good slave, right? You're, you're working in a business, be a good worker. You don't just say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm special, you can't touch me, I can do whatever I want. What a bizarre way to, to live and be sanctified. No, no, a thousand times no. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the moral, yes, but primarily the spiritual, our union with Christ, our separation because we have been bought by his blood, we are born again, and the morality flows from that. We take his law seriously, we take his gospel seriously. The good news of Christ Jesus who covers our sins and failures of the law. And he gives some reasons of being or of, of what it means to be a special people of God. And if you notice, it says his own special and no one else's. Reason one, we're called out of darkness. Of those who are out of darkness, who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. From the darkness of what? 
a light being turned off. Obviously, you know, it's a metaphor for sin, the darkness of sin that darkens our intellect, the darkness of the world of Satan. It's true for us today, as it was for them when Peter was writing to all the Christians spread across uh, the Mediterranean there. The power of sin, the ways of thinking and excusing sin, the kingdom of sin, the desires of the flesh and of the world and of our imaginations. The darkness comes in many forms, and God saved us from that, brothers and sisters. You, you see that at times when you watch some of the shows uh, about murders and mysteries, and you're like, how can people actually do that? And that's not because you think you're somehow better. It's just that God had changed you, and you can't, he, he's, he's purging you. Now, sometimes there's th some sins we've seen, maybe stealing. You're like, yeah, I remember doing that when I was a kid. I know I did once. I got caught. The gum wasn't worth it, kids. Don't, gum's not worth it. But often these heists are something more serious. It ends up with someone dead, right? And the like. And then you have interviews with murderers. Why did you do it? I just never killed anybody. I want to, want to know what it felt like. You just, your jaw drops. Because God has worked in you and called you out of that kind of darkness. You could have been there. Maybe you were somewhere like that. From the darkness, of course, in this context, of paganism. We heard about that in Sunday school class as we're going over church history. I'm going over the ancient church and the background of the Greco-Roman Empire. And you read the details, right? And you think, wow, that sounds like America. What The details are incredible. How much overlap there is. The difference, of course, is there you have Christianity busting forth, bursting forth from the dead carcass of paganism. Today, we're having a dying Christianity and paganism's growing around it. It's in reverse. In the West, I can't speak of other places, they had old pagan ways of worship, for example, right? The multitude of gods and the way they worship them. The old pagan ways of living, of lying, of stealing, of breaking families, of preying on the poor and the like, and they do it in the name of their gods, and the rationales they use, the darkness of their mind. That's what he's talking about to his audience. Because I believe here in this context and elsewhere, other verses, although uh, there are, again, dis disagreements amongst commentators, I think the audience is primarily Gentile with, Christ with Jewish influence. There are probably a lot of proselytes who are, are understood the Old Testament. That's why he references it a lot. But the language of being in darkness and the like isn't, is almost always used for Gentile backgrounds, right? It's similar today. Many Christians, more, uh, many Christians, of course, have had unbelieving backgrounds, so a lot of us had some experience in this, where we grew up in non-Christian homes without Sunday worship, no Bible reading, no prayer. You were distracted by entertainment, work, and things of this world, perhaps. So at least it wasn't raw paganism. That's a good thing. From that darkness, from this way of thinking of the world and living outside of Christ and in sin, into the marvelous lights of his redemptive power of Christ Jesus of the marvelous light of, of truth in general. There is a God. There is a Bible. There is a church. To the gospel truth in particular, we are sinners in need of a Savior, and God saved us anyway. And so now we see, with the light of God's revelation upon our hearts, the world, our lives, politics, and entertainment differently, from a different standard often, and different goals to be sure, that these things are to be used, if used at all, for God's kingdom and for each other and not for selfish gain or for the sins of this world. So that's the first reason, that we came out of darkness and come into the marvelous light of the revelation of the Word of God here this evening. And the second reason, you who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. Again, reminding us of how the Gentiles were not a people. They were never called. They were never special until now. That is, any who believe in Christ are special not be, just because they're Gentiles. <clears throat> as we know, Gentiles were not the people of God as such. And this verse here has echoes of Hosea 1.9, where he tells them, you are not my people. Right? In the Old Testament times, the people of God meant being Jewish and acting Jewish, to be sure. 
both in culture, the food and the clothing restrictions and the ceremonial law and the priest and the temple. But now, as we see here, taking Hosea 1.9, which he berates the Jews saying, you're not my people, you're, you're so disobedient to me. You might as well not be my people. And those who are not my people, I'll call them and make them my people. There's a play on words there in the Hebrew. But we can, and are God's people, whoever believes. We don't have to be Jewish anymore or living in Israel. <laughs> you don't have to act like a Jew. But you do have to act like a Jew. Because the contrast, again, is relative. The Jews had God's moral law. The Jews had the prophecies of Christ. To that extent, we're still acting like Jews, right? We're the fulfillment of all that they were supposed to have. Praise be to God. We are a holy people, special and marked out and set aside. Our heritage is the Old Testament. Our inheritance is the new heaven and the new earth, brothers and sisters. And we are called to be proclaimers of God's praise. We are set aside as his people, holy and special, not to make us feel good, but I hope it makes you feel good, but for the purpose of showing forth the praise of the glory of God. The church is God's people. As a chosen generation is designed to show forth to the world the wonders of the invisible God. They see it, but what they see are the terrors of judgment, as we see in Romans 1.18. They know there's a God. There are no atheists, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and live in fear of that judgment. But they put a smile on their face and try to redefine reality to hide that. But we, when they come witness and see us, will see there's God again. We can't hide from him from general revelation, nor from the special revelation of the church, of the Bible manifested in the church. How to show forth the praise of God? Simply, by song and psalms and public worship, by reading the word of God in prayer, and by our lives, as he'll unpack here in the next few verses. By our lives, brothers and sisters, God has set us aside. We are the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the, the Jewish nation conquering the world and all the pagans uh, and some of the prophecies coming to Jerusalem, that is, the church with Christ the center, and bringing forth their praise and joining God's people. That's us. That's the New Testament period. We are fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. Isn't that amazing? We can read this and be encouraged to know that God has set us aside. He has taken us out of darkness so that we can show forth to the world praise of the wonder grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty, for making us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people called to show forth your praise. And may we ever continue to praise you, even if our lips do not move. May our hearts continue to praise you, Lord, as long as they beat in our breasts. In your name alone we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.